Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. This is the show all about commercial property investing for the private investor. For those of you who want to create great cash flow, no matter where you are in the world, this is aimed at both individuals just getting started in commercial property and those with a growing portfolio. Through interviews, hard-learned lessons and tips from professional investors, we want to give you a constant source of inspiration and up-to-date information on what has worked and what hasn't worked so you can make more informed decisions about your commercial real estate investments. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. We have a great interview lined up for you today with Dan Taylor of Taylor Capital. He's a super long career of buying businesses and commercial property, which has built up a lot of knowledge and quite a number of battle scars. Dan and I chat about a number of different aspects of commercial property investment, and in particular, we talk about how to leverage value with those more traditional FRI leases. That's the full repairing and insuring leases. Plus, we focus in on Dan's strategy called boxing a brand. The key approach with this is to find the customer or tenant first and then find the property which is a different strategy to my own, so I found it particularly interesting. And as I've often said on the podcast, commercial property is not just a single strategy. It has multiple strategies under the same lid. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. I'm sure you'll pick up a number of knowledge nuggets mixed in with a dose of inspiration. Welcome to Dan Taylor of Taylor Capital. Thank you for sharing some of your time with myself and our listeners today, Dan. How are you doing? Where are you talking to us from? I'm awesome. Coming in from Kilmacomb, Scotland. Uh, still up in here. It's beautiful snow outside, about four inches. Absolutely gorgeous. And uh, yeah, excited to be here. Always excited to be on your show, buddy. Uh, I love it when great minds get together. Great. Thanks, Dan. And just to give us a sense of life for you right now, I, I love to kind of give listeners a snapshot of where um, people are right now, and then we can go back and dig into how you actually got there. So maybe you could just give us a, an idea of well, firstly, what Taylor Capital is, and also maybe just what a typical day-to-day is for you. Right. Well, Taylor Capital is a club that we set up initially to help people uh, get into commercial property, understand the language, the strategies, the structures, tax structures, tax wrappers, and every, all the beautiful thing that is commercial property. And um, we started off with that, and we've kind of morphed, evolved into um, a lot of people at the end of 2020 or something, I came to me and they said, love the strategies, love how you can really force capital appreciation. But I'm going to be honest with myself, I've, I've been sensible enough to take this pension under my own control and I've created a SaaS. It's now under my control, but I don't have the time to do it. So can you help me out, Dan? Can we piggyback on some of your deals? And it got me thinking. And I thought, you know what? Why not? And, and then beginning in 2021, we started developing our own kind of closed doors, club members, crowdfunding platform. And um, and I thought, you know, how hard can it be? <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, you know, never underestimate how wrong you can be. And it, was, it was hard. It did take longer than expected. And it cost a hell of a lot more money than expected. Don't do this at home. <laughs> <laughs> but needless to say, we launched in uh, August and we did our first raise, which is absolutely fantastic. And if there's any investors out there listening thank you very much uh, it was awesome and it always will be awesome working with you we raised uh, over a seven figure sum on our first raise for a property that cost 5.1 million now the gdv on that property is uh, 14 million um, and the great thing about that property is cash flow day one 
got two tenants in, Poundland CX paying £410,000 a year. Uh, and then we've got the three floors upstairs that are kind of vacant and, um, and fully now stripped out. But we're hoping to put 25 apartments in there. Uh, we've got planning for the existing upstairs for apartments. And we're going for another floor on top as well. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Touch wood. Um, so in terms of the club, where it's morphed into, um, our club members help raise the money to get that deal of the line. And, uh, and now we're going into helping our club members uh, really help their SAS pension take a quantum leap through, um, I suppose, diversification. So we're going to help them really grow uh, their SAS pension through the acquisitions or investing in acquisitions of businesses and commercial property, and hopefully where they both come in the same pie. Yeah, and that's really... I guess that that's where your experience over the years, because Dan, we've known each other now for a couple of years. I've been following you for a little bit longer. I, I, you've been um, so um, good at sharing information about commercial property. And your background is a bit of a mix, isn't it? It's not just about commercial. It's also that business acquisition bit. So could you maybe just take us back then? What, where did those two join together? And when did you sort of do that first commercial deal? Was it a simple deal or was there some business involved in that too? Is there a simple deal? <laughs> no, is there a simple deal? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. My goodness, that last one we did on the 5th of November. Oh my goodness. Um, the universe was testing everything I had. On my <laughs> at the run-up to completion, we had a, a million pound of VAT issue right at the last minute.com, literally three weeks ago. Uh, and then a 50,000 pound stamp duty on the fifth, one million pound. Of course, VAT. yep. That we had to use some restructuring, a group restructuring to accommodate that so we didn't pay the million pounds nor the 50k of uh, SDLT. Now, these things come at you and you have to be prepared for these things. Uh, fortunately, I must have been dropped as a kid, but I love challenges. Uh, I love providing solutions, you know, creative solutions to challenges kind of thing. And um, when, when that was going on, I must admit, it was probably a little bit too much. I was up at half past three in the morning with these ideas that you can't get out of your head and I had to scribble them down straight away. Yep. But, uh, sorry to digress. Coming back to the first deal, um, just before first deal, I, I kind of started out in life kind of failing forward. We did a, a number of what you call uh, lessons uh, in terms of businesses, set up a restaurant, set up a clothes shop, set up something else. And in fact, one of them, Ted Baker. Does anybody know Ted Baker? Have you heard of him? Ted yeah. Baker. Well, I was the first person to go down to see Ray Kelvin, the founder of Ted Baker in London, and convince him into setting up a franchise, me being the franchisee, in the West End of Edinburgh. Now, at the time, I was sitting in a little six-foot by four-foot donut kiosk, my first ever business. Yeah, so six-foot <laughs> I'm sitting in there in a quiet time, reading this GQ magazine, and there's an advert in there, take care of Ted. They're looking for wholesalers, not franchisees. But I thought, wow, I love Ted Baker. I could be a franchisee. Went down to, got on my bike, have my best Ted Baker shirt on, and I strolled into Ray Kelvin's office, and I managed to talk him into you know, setting up a franchise with me being the first franchisee in Edinburgh. So what can go wrong? Edinburgh, Ted Baker, the only variable in the whole mix was Dan Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I managed to, uh, you know, successfully make that fail. And, uh, and then another business after that and another business. To the point where we got back to, um, I suppose, what I know best is property. 
And we, I, I kind of did a, a, a deal in 1995 as the first, I mean, did other deals before this property, smaller things, commercial to resi and whatnot, but this is our first one that kind of opened my eyes. And it was, uh, it was a distressed property in Edinburgh, Toll Cross, Home Street. And um, basically the, 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 the power being pulled, the, the shutters were down, somebody done a midnight flick kind of thing. So I, we did a search, found out it was an Allied Irish bank, I had the, the security. Again, on my bike, knocked on the door, back in the days where you can just speak to the bank manager. And, and I said, look, you've got an issue up here. You're probably not even aware of it yet, but um, why don't you bring up the loan docs and see what's outstanding? Because he's, he's not there anymore. Do some DD and phone me back if you whatever. So a week later, he calls back and we're sitting in front. He's got the computer up, bringing up, okay, we've got 100 and um, whatever. I've got 114 outstanding on this. Uh, can you clear the whole lot? I said, no, no, I'll pay your legal fees as well. How's that? And he, he's just, eyes were amazed, you know? So we'll give him 117K for this 700 square foot freehold property. And two and a half years later, we sold that for three quarters of a million, which is quite nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and we actually sold it. So we crystallized that capital event. Yeah, we didn't pay any tax on it. That's a whole nother story. Yep. But, but, you know, the, it went from 117, probably 150 actually, after we did the refurb, 150 to 750. So that opened my eyes uh, into, because it was a business and it was a property. Yeah, we put a business in there. The business was a gaming center. And, uh, you know, if you imagine a 46-year-old female shopper as the average customer playing the puggies, a yep. or small machines. And so the business was doing like 150,000 profit. We had the property. And we sold them both in the one package. Now, later on, about a year later, I then learned about a sale and lease back and how, how stupid I'd been. <laughs> Not holding on and, yeah. Well, I had never done a lease and then sold the business and, and then sold the property. And I probably lost about a quarter million pounds not knowing that one little nugget, which is incredible. And this is how powerful commercial is, that you know, little nuggets can make you significant sums uh, for very little effort. Like my best sale and lease back, this is not to boast or anything. This is just to give you a, a, an insider's view of what you can do with a sale and lease back. We had a group, in fact, I'll come on to that in a second. So we did this little project, 700 square foot, but size of a two bed flat, sold it for three quarters. And then on July uh, the 4th, 1997, we started our first you know, foray into business acquisitions, like properly into business acquisitions. We've done them before, but this was a, a, a premeditated roll-up strategy. And um, so the first one was July 4th, 97. It's a lease option. Why is it a lease option? Because we never had enough capital because we hadn't sold the other property yet. It was still in transition of being sold. So this was uh, 880,000 pounds, this property. Um, we didn't have 80,000 pounds. The bank wouldn't give us 880. Uh, despite being a big property and it was cash flowing um, because the owners were maybe not showing on the books exactly what was coming in, shall we say. So it was hard to finance things like that. So we put um, 100,000 pounds down, uh, got the credit cards out to pay the balance of the 80,000 pounds and then with us a lease option for three years on 700K for the property. Yeah, that business then proceeded to make 250,000 pounds a year and easily funded the property quite you know, very, very easily. So after that, we kind of bought some more properties over from that point to 2005-ish or something. And eventually we had 30 units um, up and down the UK. Um, 
and we got to about 21.4 million value, about 50 million of debt, roughly. This leads on and about 253 staff, 30 shops up and down the UK, from the south coast to Dundee, uh, little, little pockets. So that brings on to the, uh, the sale lease back quite nicely because we're at 21.4 value. And then without buying any more property, without doing any more acquisitions at all, we went from 21.4 to 29.8 by doing a sale and lease back of our properties into one vehicle and our business into another vehicle and fencing the two and connect them to with a long-term lease, a contract. Um, so that, that, that was quite an important point. I said this, I'll say it again. We went from 21.4 million in value to 29.8 million in value just by doing a sale and lease back by uh, manipulating something called a cap rate, which is how you value commercial property, which is pretty nuts, isn't it? They're all in one pot. The business and the commercial real estate is in one pot. We basically did that, put the commercial real estate into another pot, another company, and kept the businesses here and had long-term leases and the business paid the rent. And our plan was then to sell the businesses. Yeah, we'd already increased the value by 8.4 to 21 to 30 million, but we wanted to increase that further by doing one thing, selling the businesses to a PLC and our cap rate would come down and our cap rate is the reverse of value. So our value would go up even more. And that was the game plan then. So that's kind of how we kind of got into in our kind of journey into business buying. And then um, we actually got into, uh, you never believe this, but we got into a contract to sell the businesses to a PLC. In fact, we went to market. We didn't, we were, we were pretending to go to market, um, but we only wanted one person on the hook for the leases, which was a PLC, the only PLC in the game, because that 30 million would go to 40 million because the strength of that tenant, now this is intrinsic to boxing a brand, the strength of that tenant was significantly more than we were as a company, despite having a you know, 10 million plus turnover. So despite us being 30 million, they would have pushed our value in the real estate arm really, really high. So our businesses would have been sold to them, increasing the commercial property value. And then we sold, we were, the plan was to sell the commercial property. But you know yourself, Jerry, Man plans and God laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> what happened to the economy? <laughs> and uh, we're, we're on a completion day after a year and a half of nonsense, you know, legal fees and all this kind of stuff. And we're on a completion day, April 2009. Yeah. Completion day is after a credit sanction, second credit sanction, 100 grand PwC report for under, you know, insurance for the bank, basically. And um, we, we weren't aware of this macroeconomic event happening. It wasn't the, the GFC, the, the financial crisis, where we're at that, obviously. It was this, um, uh, the bank at the time were trying to get a £5 billion promissory note from an offshore fund, uh, a wealthy family, and so they didn't have to do what RBS did in Northern Rock and get you know government yep. kind of help kind of thing. Why? Defend directors' bonuses. <laughs> Bankers' greed. Who loves the bank, eh? <laughs> uh, so on the date of completion, everything signed off, and it started at 6 o'clock in the morning. And at half past four, um, all of, there's 11 lawyers around the room. And, and I said, look, are we finally there? Are we done? Are you sure? You've checked everything. He says, Dan, they cannot get out, even if they try to get out. I said, so why are we not corking the champagne right now? Because I'm on the beach. You know, I'm booking a flight. <laughs> 
So, and they said, well, we're just waiting for this uh, 1A4 bit of paper from the bank, final release of grant of security to release this. The businesses to the PLC, we get the money in, pay down the debt, happy days. We're off, you know, off to the races kind of thing. And, um, and that was at half four. I said, well, obviously, has anybody phoned the bank? I'll phone the bank right now. So we've got the bank on, on speakerphone and uh, so everybody could hear. And the bank said, well, um, I can't speak right now. I said, well, we've got a PLC and I think they probably spent quarter million legal fees. I said, well, the deal's done. You just need to send through the A4 bit of paper. He says, I'll call you back half past 11 at night. He phones back. You know, literally seven hours later, we're still all in the table in the, the conference room. Oh. And you, can, you can imagine the fees, you know, yep. um, they were horrendous and Domino's pizzas coming in and all this kind of stuff. And uh, at half past 11 at night, the banker called me back. He says, Dan, we can't allow the deal to proceed. I said, the deal is done. Um, the deal's done. It's done. You just need to send this final, you know, A4 bit of paper with your signature on it. It's done. He says, we can't allow it to proceed. You know, they wouldn't tell us why, they wouldn't tell us anything else. And from that point on, um, they then forced me to sell the assets at pence on the pound, completely hung me over, sold the assets at pence on the pound. And, uh, and we still work with the bank, even though we're getting completely humped, um, because you've always got to make the best of a bad situation. You know, there's always a silver lining, always put your best foot forward, always come from a point of ethics, always come from a point of a moral high ground. And there'll always be something there at the end of the rainbow for you. And for me, it was buying a few assets back from a bank at pence on the pound for myself. And it was for me of it changed my deal DNA from that point going on. Complete and utter mistrust for the bank, hate bankers, bankers greed, institutional raping and pillaging, VCs, PAs, didn't want to talk to them anymore at all. And but it it was the biggest business gift that I've ever had in my life, which is kind of weird to say. And the gift was this that I was that par paranoid about banks and leverage. And, you know, I thought it was a sensible level of debt and they could completely steal your whole business off you. That from that point on, I said to myself, number one, I don't want 253 staff. <laughs> number two, I want an easy life. Number three, I want hassle-free, secure long-term income. And number four, I want someone else to be put in front of, in between me and the customer. Because whoever's customer facing, as a recapitalization every seven or eight years to refresh their business, yeah? So let's ditch the CapEx. Let's basically um, get rid of customers. Let's get rid of staff and let's create something. How can I create something? What would that, you know, what would that look like? If it was easy, what would it look like? What does great look like for all those component parts to come together? And I came up with this thing about buying businesses and boxing a brand. So buying a business in decline, so you can buy a business that's trading, that owns its underlying commercial property at, at ridiculous low levels, and then look for the demand in the area, the alternative use, and put that alternative use in the box. Now, that could be a number of things, one of which we've done um, is a boxing a brand kind of thing. It's not quite, it's like a development, but it's a, it was a trading business. It was on the market for offers over £340,000. You never believe it, but we managed to buy it for 120K. It's 13,000 square foot commercial. And what it's going to be is a 50 million GDV, 150 purpose-built student studios. And the impact of the streetscape, the economy, the local regeneration is going to be incredible as a result of it. And that's, that's one, that's maybe 
if you're just starting out, it's maybe not your first one, but everyone can buy 120,000 pound commercial property. The art is getting it from offers over 340 down to 120. Yeah. And there was a number of different strategies to do that. But what we ended with up with is a lease option. So a lease is just an agreement between a party for a length of term to pay some rent or there could be a rent-free period in that term. And during that period, there's an option to take up or call option on the property that you want to buy at any point in time. Now, the art is getting the contract right so that the call option can be disputed. It's recorded on the title. And even it goes down to our heritable successors. And on top of that, the price for the property is agreed at the outset, not negotiated down the road. Um, all these things culminate in you know, what you can call the art of the deal, I suppose. You know? Great. Dan, that's a terrific intro to what you've been doing. And if I can just summarise, right, just going back, basically the first property was in, incorporated a trading business. And you built up that trading business by acquiring other ones, yeah, businesses that were operating in units. And the model really there was that those businesses owned their property. They weren't leasing them. They owned the property. They were either trading well or not. You built up a group. And the value, just for listeners, the value came from, or the increase in value came from effectively separating out the trading business. The day-to-day operations sat in the operating company, and then it leased these properties from the holding company that was holding on to the properties, yeah, Opco, Propco, which really helped leverage up the value. But then, of course, the extra little layer you added in there was that if you can sell the operating business to a very well-known, well-structured operating business, it will have an impact straight away on the value of the properties because the covenant strength, not because they're paying more rent, but just because the new operating company is perceived as even stronger than the previous one, and therefore investors feel more comfortable with that. So they're willing to pay more, which is then, as you say, is the reason to then, right, okay, we've done all the steps. Now we're ready to sell the, the actual property element. And then, of course, there was the challenge with the bank and all great plans. But nevertheless, that's the story, isn't it? And then so what you're talking about with the box and the brand is is very similar, isn't it? It's basically buying operating businesses that have the asset. They have to have the asset. There's no point buying something that's leased or not necessarily straightforward as that anyway. And then taking that operating business and either improving that operating business or and we've got into the subject I really want to get into, finding a brand that's going to take on that premises and then utilising that second part we spoke about earlier on, which is now you've got a really strong covenant. Now the value of the underlying asset, the property, has gone up significantly. And can I just ask one question? Someone that was in the back of my mind, way back at the start, we were talking about that first one, it was 115, went up 750. If the if the trading element of the business wasn't there, what would you have valued that property on its own as at that point of um, the revaluation? Yeah, you go back to commercial uh, valuation basics, which is what would it rent for in a, in a, a willing yeah. willing seller kind of thing. And at, at the time, probably 30K rent, and you probably get a 10 cap. So on a good day, 300K, but more, probably two to, 250 would be a sensible valuation. Yeah. yeah. So if so if a so if a commercial investor, purely commercial investor, not active, not doing any trading, the building has still gone up by two, maybe three times in value from what you've bought it. Yeah, and you don't have to buy trading businesses either. We've bought vacant property, 
which is not my preferred option because there's no cash flow kind of day one. I mean, yeah. it is a great one to do. We've done it to great effect, to be honest. Uh, one um, was not just vacant, it was dilapidated. Um, you know, it was like, a, it was ugly, it was chunky. Uh, and and it, from a certain viewpoint, that's beautiful to me, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it really was. And, uh, but I seen something else there, uh, completely different. And this one I bid initially, I never got it. Somebody else got it. Um, and it scared me how little they paid compared to what I bid, which, you know, there's another story for another day. <laughs> but eventually he never caught with a game plan, i.e. a commercially viable game plan. He was in London and Belize. His, um, his QS, his architect and his, his guys up here were coming up with game plans. And in the course of coming up with that game plan, they managed to burn through £47,000 in professional fees of his money, you know? So he managed to get the thing for, I think it was 100K, and he burnt through £147,000 of professional fees. So on the phone, literally in five minutes, I said, I'll give you all your money back, 147K uh, cash. I, I can do it as fast as you want. Next week, the week after, whatever. I don't need any DD. I've already done the title searches. And he says, cool. Um, so we did a deal. I bought it for cash quick. And then, uh, and you know, but... And this, I'll stress this, what I'm about to tell you next, no, nobody should ever do this. Um, <laughs> I, at, <laughs> at the time I did this, I never had a game plan, but I knew the patch like the back of my hand. Yeah. So I kind of knew I would come up with a game plan um, as I've never not come up with a game plan so far. And, you know, big man willing, you'll continue to help me. But this one, I went in kind of, I went in, went upstairs, nearly fell through the first floor into the bar downstairs. You know, this is how bad it was. Um, so from word go, I'm thinking it's a demolition and restart, you know. Um, but at the time, I just retired on 26th of March 2016. And I just couldn't be bothered with the development. I just wanted to chill out and really think about the bigger game plan. What am I doing going forward? So I came up with this. It was boxing a brand plus also boxing a developer. I call it the boomerang bob. Um, and, it's a way, <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of a way of doing developments without being Bob the Builder. Yeah. So I seen uh, a brand new kind of four story building there. And I seen social, affordable apartments and a beautiful building, the likes of which have never been seen before, and two commercial units on the ground floor. And I kind of pictured this. I had a, the architect sketch it up, what I was talking about. And then I kind of then interviewed six housing associations. And I said, would you like to have a flagship on the trunk road on the west of Scotland that portray, give investors an insight to what you do? You know, and I, I pitched this kind of vision of what they could achieve here to elevate what affordable housing could be in the future and to really put their flag on that mountain to say, this is us, we're moving forward kind of thing. You know, so we did this, we then got down to one person. And remember, this is a development without being Bob the Builder. So I came up with this game plan. We got the planning permission. We secured a contract from the uh, housing association. And this is the boomerang part. We sold the contract to them on a boomerang basis where they had to demolish, build, finance, take all the risk and give the whole thing back to us, just the commercial units. They kept the upstairs. They get to do their flagship product. We kept the two commercial units downstairs um, without getting involved. Um, without financing, without any of that kind of nonsense. Because remember, I just retired and I just didn't want to get involved in a day-to-day -day project again. Um, 
And, you know, in terms of the numbers, yes, we made some money at the front end. I think um, we bought it for 147 and sold it to them for 167 or something, negligible. But, um, you know, what's the true cost? What's the net cost at the end when it all washes out? Care commercial property is £25,000 with no risk, no financing, no building, no DB contracts, none of that kind of stuff. And everybody in Largs thinks I did the whole thing. I suppose I did do it. I engineered the whole thing and put the whole strategy into place and then facilitated somebody else to do it. So, and these kind of things, don't think you have to be the builder. Never think you have to take on all the risk. And remember when I had that experience with the banks, I now come from a point of view of how do I de-risk everything? Yeah, so I'm coming from a point of view, how do I, what are the, what are the risks, identify the risks, how do we silo each risk, identify it, mitigate it, risk, insure against it, and with the paranoia on risks. And I like to bake them all down and turn them into a fixed kind of situation as much as possible. Now, when the risk is on their side, imagine this, imagine they're late, you know, which could be an issue, might not be an issue. It wasn't an issue for me, but in the contract, if they were late, I was to be paid a thousand pounds a week, which is quite nice. Um, now I didn't, uh, when they were late and they were quite significantly late, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't demand that. I'm more about, you know, long-term relationships and we just come up with a deal uh, that worked as, you know, worked for both of us at the end. But the key thing is that was 147,000 pounds. Anybody could have bought that. Anybody listening to this podcast right now could finance that or find one investor to finance that and do the deal together. You have to be the kind of uh, the conductor or the imagineer of the strategy of the deal and, and then bring in an investor if you need to on your first deal. And if you haven't done a development before, come, you know, do this kind of strategy where you're not being involved the builder, somebody else's. And then, you know, you've got, you've got some experience under your belt. So that was 147,000. And it's worth going to be, well, vacant possession. Get this. It cost me net 25,000 each, so 50,000 pounds because it's two units, and VP is worth 510. Yeah. Now, the one I told you about before is 120,000 pounds. Anybody listening to this podcast right now could buy one of those kind of projects, and it was a trading business. Yeah. Now, the GDV on that is going to be 15 million, and the profit is about 5 million. And I don't even need to build it to make the profit. And see, I, I did not build it. Then maybe the profit is three and a half or something because you've got to leave some food on the table for the next guy. Yeah. So you can be the conductor and the imagineer of deals and not get your feet wet kind of thing. And what are the, what are the years of those deals? Uh, well, they don't happen overnight. Um, the, the one at 120,000, we took our first initial lease option on September 2012. Mm-hmm. We- we took up the option to buy and, and when I, I kind of retired 26th of March 2016 uh, because when I bought I also did a, man, a facility to management buy it for the manager to buy the business so I, I wasn't left running the business yeah and I had a lease in place and so that was 216 we've just been in for planning for the 150 PBSA you know purpose-built student studios why because it's right next door to the university and it's right next door to the student union uh, and it will always be there. Nobody will trump that location. It's just when I seen that, I seen student accommodation and nobody else for some reason seen that. They just seen a downtrodden, dilapidated business that's going nowhere. And I just think, holy shit, it's right next door to the university. Um, but I then track the occupancy levels of the housing for the university over the years. And when it got to the appropriate level, 87%, 
that's when I started making a, you know, inroads into it, meeting all the university people, the housing people, the planners and all this kind of thing. I wasn't in a rush. Why wasn't I in a rush? Because I had something that cost me 120 grand. It was bringing in 24,000 pound rent. I'm getting 20% yield while I am patiently waiting for the, the occupancy levels to get the right level. In terms of the other one at 147, we bought that back about, it was in the lockdown. So 2020, yep. yeah. And um, we're talking to a national hot food operator just now about going in there. Right. Okay. So for those listening, some may feel that's a lot of spinning plates, but I think it's really important to, to stress that when you've gone into those deals, Dan, they work from day one. Yeah. And the long-term potential was one possible exit. So I, I, if I may, um, maybe take more words out of your mouth, but these deals, they need to work day one. And then you've got these multiple exits or potentials for that deal, but they don't, you, they don't always happen overnight. They take time. And this game is not for overnight, or you could make some money overnight, but long-term, that's where the real wealth comes from. But you don't have to have absolutely the perfect exit lined up. You need to have several yeah. ideas on exit, but it needs to work day one to mitigate the risk. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. That 120, 20% return day one. Yeah. No, I, I'm doing nothing, literally nothing. I'm, I, 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 do, I organize insurance once a year. That's it. Yeah. You know, in the 147, you know, obviously that was a little bit more involved because I had to come up with a strategy, then interview six housing associations, get a contract and all that kind of stuff. But once it's passed on to them, then it's a year and a half of build. I'm not involved. Just bring it back or get my architect to inspect it. And then, you know, the, yep. uh, we take over. Um, and it was really, really easy. But yeah, those have been very long-term deals. One of them, cash flow day one, the other one, I, I just bought for cash because it was no, it was vacant. It was no, no cash flow. But there are deals that are very, very quick wins, um, and a quick win in commercial is probably a year. Yes, you know, you know it's not going to happen overnight. The only ones that happen overnight that you can have an immediate effect on your cash flow and your wealth are buying businesses are that own their commercial property that are profitable. Yeah. So, Let's, let's dive a little bit more into boxing the brand. So if somebody is looking at a unit and they think, well, okay, there's a, let's say, a, a lower quality covenant in there. It's a single operator in a building that's maybe not operating very well, or indeed it's vacant. How do you go about working out what brands are looking for space and what actually, um, what their criteria is? So, for instance, um, Dan, you mentioned there a hot food national chain, hot food. Who, who else would you work with on a national basis, and how do you find out the information on what it is that they're looking for? Um, that's an awesome question. If I am looking for a vacant commercial property, I will always already know who will want to be in that property or wouldn't be interested in looking at it in the first place unless I'm on a winger and it's my patch like the one I told you about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do you do that? It's like reverse engineering the whole process. You know, imagine you're driving by somewhere, you know, you see a new, oh, there's a co-op, a new co-op food store has opened up. Oh my God, I didn't know that. It's just opened. You know, that's a three-year process for you to, you know, that's happened behind the scenes 
from you witnessing that in your car. So how do you reverse engineer that one and a half to three year process behind, you know, how do you reverse engineer that back? Well, firstly, you uh, find out, you know, it, if I was in a town, I'd be looking at, okay, who's all the brands here? And who's the noticeable brands that are not here? Let's give them a call first because they're low hanging fruit. Yeah, so I call them um, and find out, you know, if they want to expand in this place. But really what I do even before that, I go and speak to the brands regularly or used to. Um, and I'd ask them, you know, sit down with their acquisitions manager uh, or they're usually represented by an agent, a retained agent. So like Co-op Food, for example, they've got 14 regional acquisition managers whose full-time job is to fill a number of sites in their geographic location per year. Yeah. Now, each one of those has a retained agent. So there's two people working full-time and the acquisition manager has an assistant as well. So that's three people times the 14 geographic locations. Do you think they're keen to get sites? Absolutely. Yeah. Now that's 14 plus the assistants, 28 within the company that are full-time employees paid serious money and a car and a phone and a XYZ. And they're also paying a retained agent. And this is, you know, the retained agent's got to find, say, uh, you know, nationally, they're probably opening 100 a year and it's divided between their locations. So say it's 10 locations a year. What happens is this. If, for example, in Scotland, the chat doesn't find 10 locations, you can't secure 10 locations, then that's basically um, 3.6 million of CapEx for co-op. Yeah, so 360,000 pound a shop, you know, on average. There's, there's bigger ones, there's smaller ones, but 360 on average. Um, if they don't fit 10 shops a year, the next year they'll get moved down to nine and that other one will go to a surplus somewhere, probably southeast, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, and this is how it works. And what is it for a retained agent bagging a co-op gives them 10,000 pounds. Now that's 10,000 pounds times 10 because they've got to find 10 a year. That's 100 grand a year. Now, if they go, if that's 100 grand a year, that's a massive, that probably covers all their overheads for the whole office. Yeah. So if they lose one and they only bag nine, they're down to 90K a year. So they're really, really keen to actually, you know, get locations. So what you want to do I speak to these people to find out, okay, what your CapEx for the next year is obviously, you know, full. But let's talk about a year to year and a half um, and let's find you something so that you're not stressed against the wall. We're here to help you help the acquisitions manager, help the company kind of thing. So you're at the bottom of the feeding chain. But if you're there coming from a, a point of service, being humble and, and, and really there to help them, and show them the deals you've done before. And if you haven't got any deals you've done before, show them some deals that one of your friends have done before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really what you're there to do is a year out, a year to two years, let's try and you know, fill that pipeline. Where's your gaps geographically? Where's your gaps? I'm here to help you fill that gap and I'll find a suitable property for you. Yeah. So, and then keep in touch with them every six weeks. You, they don't want to hear from you too often, but, you know, a little email now and again, just to keep in touch and then have a chat. You know, I used to have a chat once a quarter, like go and actually old school, go and see them, go and meet them for coffee. And guess what comes up within that year, something will fall away and they'll be panicked because they're now down from 10 to nine because something fell away and they'll be reaching out to somebody that they know that might be able to help them fill a hole. Yeah. Now, how would... How does that look like if you could potentially get into that position and fill a hole? Well, I'll give you a, a real life example. 
we bought a trading business for one and a quarter million. And, you know, so it's not everybody's first shot probably. Uh, and it's a trading business with staff and all those kind of things. Yep. So you have to know what you're doing with a lot of things that we won't go into just now. Um, but I looked at that, it's 13,000 square foot. And I just thought, oh my God, Weatherspoons, Co-op, Costa Coffee, and, and then another, you know, something else at the end. And, um, and I never retained an agent for that. And there's a big reason why. Um, I didn't market it. I went specifically and targeted very specific tenants that I thought, once they're in, they're going to be in for life. Yeah. Because remember, I'm at my phase where I'm trying to retire and, you know, I want hassle-free income. So I thought, I just want tenants that are going to be in for life. Witherspoons, when they get there, they'll never leave. And they want to buy the building there. Uh, Co-op, if they go in there, they're never going to leave because they're going to trade their socks off in this place. And cost of coffee, you know, who knows, but probably not going to leave. Yeah. And um, so we, we managed it, you know, when we secured the leases for the tenants. So it's a kind of three and a half, four year process. Yeah. Uh, but this is quite a big one. I mean, in life, you probably only need one of these um, because the rent roll is £220,000. And the one, but what the, the point I'm trying to make is the one and a quarter million purchase price went to four million in value. Now, I didn't use that to then re-gear it up. I'm thinking now, okay, I'm really, I'm kind of 33% geared or, or less kind of thing, you know? And, and now I'm less geared than that. Um, you know, very little gear. Now, my goal is to get to zero gear, <laughs> which is kind of weird. While I do further acquisitions. Now, is that a bit of a, there's <laughs> a statement. Um, but, um, you know, you can really force massive capital appreciation with these kind of things. And indeed, that one I told you about, it was 147. It was demolished, you know, 12 affordable apartments upstairs, two commercial units downstairs, 25,000 net cost to me per shop. And the VP value is 510,000. If we get the right tenants on the right terms, and we're already speaking to, as I said, a, a national fast food operator, yeah? Um, the right tenant on the right terms in there, that'll be worth 753,000 pounds because having those tenants in there on a reasonable lease which is kind of 15 with a break at 10 15 year lease with maybe a break at 10 is a very strong guarantee that they will pay the rent and because it's a very strong guarantee and they're backed by huge companies with big balance sheets then investors are willing to take less of a return on their money because it's a safe investment yeah and that's really what valuation comes down to how safe is this investment? Therefore, you get less return. The, let, the more risky the investment, you get more return. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it in a nutshell. Um, but you can see how hugely in a deal you can force capital appreciation quite nicely. Um, and the art of getting these brands is really reverse engineering the process. Like I said, where's the pot going to be and bringing that down to okay, let's think now, where are you opening in a year to two years? And let's talk about that so I can help you fill that. And then you can focus on uh, getting you this year that you're in right now away. And I'll be your guide for year, you know, years one to two kind of thing. Tell me what you're looking for. What's your requirements? What's your property requirements? You know, exact location. What kind of square foot do you need? Do you need return frontage? Uh, you know, what kind of zone A or what kind of rent per square foot do you want to be paying? Um, all these kind of things. Do you need a loading base? Um, what kind of consent do you need in terms of planning? Uh, all these kind of things come into a deal pie and you're looking for a property. Do they fit this deal pie? 
Yeah, it becomes very specific. It becomes very specific. And with the um, with that approach, like you say, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Because these guys, apart from anything else, these guys take a bit of time. And there's a reason why they don't have that property is because, you know, they, they get the team haven't managed to find it yet. So it's not just going to be sitting there waiting for you. Yeah. So you do have to commit to it. Interestingly, though, also at the start, you mentioned about that property that you bought without knowing exactly who was going to move into it. But the key thing I took from that was you said, I 100% know that area. Mm. So I, I knew what was possible in that area. And I think that's it's really important, isn't it? There's kind of two ways of doing this. One is know the area really well and find that problem building, knowing that you can solve it because you've already worked out what demand is for that area. Or the complete opposite is let's go and find the tenant first, Absolutely. which is really what boxing the brand is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're boxing brand, especially when you're starting out, always, always, what I tell people is never do a Kevin Costner. Never buy it and hope they'll come. Like he built the, the field yeah. and they hope to come. Always get the tenant lined up first. Um, and then at the same time, get the property, but get a, a conditional contract on that property. Never go all in until you've got the both signed up together. And really the elixir is having an option on the property or a conditional contract. Usually can't get an option because everybody's heard of options and they kind of said, no, I want some commitment. So the way I get commitment, I get into legals, yeah? With a price while I'm negotiating with the tenant. And I've already spoke to the tenant. I know they like this area. I know they like this size. I know they like this property, but you never know if things can go wrong. Yep. Yeah. So I, I always have a condition. I go into legals with a conditional contract. Now, the conditionality could be, a, 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 you know, who knows? It's different to every deal. It could be a conditionality that we get planning. It could be a conditionality that, um, you know, the asbestos report or this kind of report or the ground survey or this. But I always have whatever I put in there is to the sole and absolute discretion of the buyer. Now that means you've got unlimited conditionality because if it's at your sole and exclusive discretion solely, then no one can say anything against that. So if you don't want to do the deal, if the tenant back, you know, bumps out, you can withdraw from the contract. Yeah, because there's a lot of plates to spin there, isn't there? And somebody listened to this thinking about the thinking through that process. There's a potential shop to buy unit, shall we call it, sorry. There is a seller involved in that. There's a potential tenant, which we haven't quite secured yet. And I want to make sure that I make all these things work so nobody catches me out yeah. or goes direct. And so, and there's agents involved and there's all the different stuff. And it's, it's trying to make sure all those plates are spinning and none of them drop down. It's quite challenging. It is. And you, you really have to have a certain, uh, you, you've got to be a deal dealer to do that kind of thing. Like one of our one of our guys that was on our program where we, we kind of taught this, which we don't anymore, but uh, we, we taught this, uh, was a really experienced residential guy, student accommodation guy, uh, but he's a real deal doer to heart, you know? And he took to this to like a duck to water. He had this property, it was an ex little site. Um, and he, you know, he says, look, I, I, I've got this site. It looks like a good price, but I haven't got a clue. What would you do with this? And we got up on a computer, we sketched out you know, what should be in there, chunked up the floor plan as to, and we put, I, I designated four tenants, you should have four tenants in here, and this is why, kind of thing. Um, now, he managed to get on completion, he got two of the tenants in there signed up, cost them 1.1, and when he had two tenants signed up, it was worth 2.78. 
So he had 95% funding. Why? Because the bank wanted him to put something in. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he could have refinanced it the next, you know, the next month and got all the money out plus more. And that he still had two tenants to go. That was not easy. Don't don't think this is easy. That was really, you know, what is easy? It's just being on the phone and negotiating. So that took a year from agreeing to do the deal with the property. A year later, or 15 months or something, the deal got completed. It shows you that somebody with no experience in commercial, but he's a deal doer. There's a massive difference there. Yeah, he's an inherent deal doer. Um, but he had no commercial experience. All he needed was a little bit of guidance, how to chunk up the property, and we're going to drop drop in a Domino's uh, or a Costa Coffee drive through at the front because we're right next to a roundabout. Absolutely phenomenal property. Um, but for little, they, they like to move on, you know, and they like to leapfrog Aldi and get the best site and all this kind of stuff. So it left this incredible property um, with massive, huge car parking, which for me struck, okay, let's get a gym, let's get a, a drive through coffee, let's get a couple of hot food things in there because it's right next to the... The, the infrastructure, the delivery infrastructure, you know, with be having a roundabout right there. So some people get really scared of that because that's lots and lots of different options and things and, and, and lots of pushing outside of a comfort zone. So I want to ask you, what have you seen as a difference between somebody who dabbles and somebody who fully immerses himself in this asset class and succeeds at it? <laughs> success is in many forms because success is different to all people. Um, and what that means to them, like the deal doer I talked about, he's he's um, you know, he's on deal doing mission. Yeah, I'm on a deal doing mission. That's not for everybody. But let's talk about somebody else who's more uh, sensible and reserved in their approach. We used to have this live deal clinic, uh, which we analyze the deals. You know, sometimes we have a head town planner there, the architect there, myself there, head deal analyst, doing the numbers in front of them, but everything. Um, so we brought six deals, like I, I kind of canned every deal, and I told, but we'd go through why, you know, why the numbers don't work and why the deal wouldn't stack, um, why the tenant is scary as hell. It's <laughs> 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 kind of thing. Um, and then he brought one that immediately, as soon as I seen it, it was phenomenal. It was Iceland, and it was already a 10 cap, which is, you know, 10% yield. So the rent times 10 for anyone listening. Yeah. So, um, and it's Iceland on a 10 cap, which is unheard of right now. Obviously, this is just before the pandemic, where everything during the pandemic, hot food delivery, food in general, just went through the roof. Uh, and it's like seen as a safe haven, like the new gold kind of thing. But when we're looking at a site, and this is cash flow day one, which I love, £50,000 a year. Yeah, it cost them five, just over 500 k um, But we managed, the way we structured it, we managed to get you know, 50 odd thousand pounds back from the tax man. 26,000 was a check back from the tax man and the other uh, 19,000 pounds was cap, uh, corporation tax he didn't have to pay going forward because of the way we structured this thing, which is kind of takes the price down to 450, yep. uh, which is pretty good, which means it's kind of a loving cap, which is nuts. Now, when you're doing these kind of things, cash flow day one, you need to ask yourself, are the tenant going to stay there? Three and a half years left in the lease. Have you bought something at net, even at net 450, are they going to be there? So you then need to start speaking to the tenants before you buy the property, which makes people sometimes nervous. But you have to do that. You have to get boots on the ground. And then you start bringing this kind of, um, you know, a kind of picture of how they're trading in that location and their plans for the future. There's people that go out there and just make it happen. And, and everybody has the things that hold them back, right? 
But some people that maybe just kind of sit on the outside and don't quite manage to get started with this, what are some of the blocks that you've recognised that people have, whether they're self-imposed or what, what's your thoughts on that? It's, it's, always, it's always one thing. It's fear. Um, and fear is, it's, it's always fear. It's yeah. fear. Whatever it is, it comes back to that common denominator of fear. And it's usually fear because you don't know some information. It's, it's, and when you peel back the layers, you realize commercial is actually easier than residential because there's a lot more um, legislation against the, the tenant where in residential, the legislation is against the landlord and it's getting worse. You know, that's exacerbating big time. So if you can get past the fear and how you get past the fear is taking action. As action creates emotion, which removes the fear, and then you're open to learning. And then it's really all about hanging about the right people who've actually done quite a few deals. So it's interesting because a lot of people would say, the reason I'm not doing this, or I think I'm not going to do this, is because I don't have access to money. I don't have the knowledge. Um, I don't know the right people, blah, 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 blah. But you're boiling it down, and I agree with you. You're boiling it down to the emotion of fear. It is. It's that you put all those labels on it, but it's, it's, the bottom line is fear. And I remember talking about fear. This is sometimes fear manifests itself biologically because it becomes that overwhelming. We were uh, starting, you know, before 97, we started our own roll up. Yeah. Yep. Talked about that. And well, just before that, we started to get a team together, you know, like a world class team. And we're going to raise some venture capital money to really go on a kind of roll up in a bigger way, kind of thing. And uh, I remember on route to meeting um he was the chief executive of a listed company and then my next meeting was uh, a director of uh, standard chartered bank the next meeting was um kind of ex-oxford mckinsey top of mckinsey consultants and i was inviting these people to get one percent equity onto my board and on the way in, in the taxi in london i literally had to tell the chap to pull over because i needed to be sick yeah out of the taxi because of all the uncomfortable feelings I had talking to someone I thought was perhaps better than me or I'm not worthy or can I do this yeah how can I get the money can I do the deal all these things that we you know tell ourselves and either believe and it holds us back or we do the thing despite the fear and despite the uncomfortableness uh, going on within ourselves we do it anyway and what's the worst that can happen absolutely what's the worst come you know when i got that kind of worry or that fear i always think to myself do you know what in 24 hours or whatever it is i'll be back doing whatever it was i was doing and it'll all be over <laughs> and i'll be better doing it than not absolutely yeah absolutely. you've got to try and keep perspective but it's interesting though isn't it it's basically it's not all those things about money or education or understanding. It's actually the thing holding you back the most is probably the person sitting in your own seat. The interesting thing about people having that epiphany or finally accepting that the person sitting in their seat is the one that is in control is suddenly there's that feeling of, ah, now I can actually control things because I am the one in control. And there's that thing about, Right, okay, I don't know enough. So yes, I'm going to go and get myself educated. Or I don't have enough money. Right, how do I find the money? Not using it as an excuse and recognising that actually it's not the world against you. It's actually you trying to work out how to do things and how to get the best out of yourself. And that can be quite scary, but also quite liberating at the same time. You know, 
if you're if you're going into the commercial space, then you know always always surround yourself with people that are doing deals. I mean, we were talking about that earlier on, Dan. You you, you were with your deal club, um, quite focused on helping getting people that were getting started or or starting to scale up in their commercial. But now you've moved slightly, and I just want to move on to really what you are doing now. You're you're working more with investors, really. Yes, still an education element, of course. Yeah. But really helping people that. Um, have that situation where they're doing well in their own business, but don't necessarily have the time and want to be able to do commercial. And let's just talk about that for a little bit, what you've moved on to now. Yeah, well, really, it came from, I suppose, mid-2020 when a lot of people just said, I, I you know, love the strategies, love being in the club, love the education, but I really, I either fear, I, I'm not just, I'm not, not going to do this on my own, or number two, I just don't have the time. And really, the time thing was the most thing. People just didn't have the time. Busy professionals, business owners, um, and they're sitting on this. They've had the, 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 the you know the foresight to think, "I'll take back my pension under my own control." And if it if it if it goes well, it goes bad. It's up to me. And so they asked me to. Um, is there any way we can piggyback? When we talked about the crowdfunding platform that we set up, and we did that raise and completed the deal in November. But going forward, we're going to be helping those kind of people. Um, you know, busy professionals, business owners with no time. We're going to help them grow their their pension or their capital. So that's what we're doing. We're we're really focused on that. It's uh, it's going great, and I've never been so alive. And uh, it's fantastic, mate. I'm I'm having a I'm having a ball. Currently, the club's closed, but you know when it opens, there'll be an application form and a kind of waiting list. So it's for investors, and the education is free. Uh, and you've spent a lot of time and money to be able to get yourself in a position where you can offer that. It's not something you can just set up and do. It's it's a lot of rules around that. Absolutely. The compliance around raising money from multiple investors into a deal on a passive basis and debt is one thing. Doing an equity is a different thing altogether. And, um, you know, developing that into the crowdfunding website. I mean, we were trying to buy a crowdfunding website. Um, And I because that's that's what I do. I buy businesses. Um, So I thought, all right, I'll just buy one. How hard can that be? And uh, we negotiated with three and was scared because the financials did not look pretty at all. And I just didn't that fancy taking on that monthly burn. So I then thought, how hard could it be? I'll develop my own. And uh, my goodness, that was, that was a rude awakening. But we got there, you know, and it's, uh, it's been great. And now it's an asset to use going forward uh, to help people that have capital, to grow their capital in a diversified way. So it's a combination of that story you went through at the start of going through those businesses and trade building up your trading business whilst building up the portfolio with it and now you've got this to a point where you can bring all that together and offer others the opportunity to, to jump on the tail absolutely and, but and, this time without debt yeah which is massive yeah we are in control not the banks we are the banks the investors are the banks in this game and it's really anti-establishment, anti-big banks, anti-bankers greed. And why do the little guys only get a 2.6 on average multiple of their profits in the UK when the big boys are getting 15 to 30 times? You know, and it's something called liquidity. In small businesses, there's no liquidity. So we can group a lot of these businesses together that have no debt, are seriously profitable, been around for decades. Then all of a sudden, we create a critical mass and then take them public, and then we've got huge liquidity. 
Okay, so Dan, let's um, just finish off on that topic. Can you give us um, just some quick details of where people can find out about that? Uh, well, if you pop on to tailorcapital.co.uk and um, you know it's the, the website has been revamped for this new approach yet, but it's all happening in the background. And probably, what is this? This is February, probably by the end of March, we'll be, we'll be good to go. Right. So we'll pop that in the show notes. The place to be able to go and keep a, keep a track of what's going on. And I want to ask you one last question, though. For those listeners that don't have um, finance sitting behind them, does that mean it's game over or can they still get into commercial? And if they can, what sort of tips would you give people that are maybe starting out and don't have necessarily um, a pot of money to be able to go and do that? Well, I think if you're starting out in commercial, uh, you know, there's there's a myriad of strategies and you'll, you'll kind of be gravitate towards one, um, you know, the, just naturally. But one I always love is cash flow day one. You know, it's just, you know, start small, cash flow day one uh, with a way to add value. Yeah. And uh, for, for me, like one of the guys in the club bought the Iceland, yes, it was half a million net 450 after the tax efficiencies. But, you know, you don't have to go as big as that. There's people in the club, um, somebody else was like that, too busy. He said, I want something hassle-free, no developing, no refurbishing, none of that nonsense. I want to just do some lease work. And it cost uh, about 200000 We got it to be worth 300000 So that is easy to get an investor on board. Why? Because there's a good property in a good location with a reasonable tenant, just a very short lease. So if you do your DED up front, you can extend that lease really really simply because you find out if you can before you buy okay so you're saying find find something a bit smaller find yourself an investor if money's a problem doesn't have to be your money Absolutely. and find yourself something that's going to give you cash flow straight away but also the option to tweak to add value basically whether it's through lease whether it's through asset management as they like to say or whether it's through some vacant element that you can find a tenant but basically find an investor Find a deal, of course. Don't okay. worry about having to fund it yourself. You can find yourself an investor, but find someone that's got that upside. Yeah, but also always, always meet the tenant before you do the deal. Like the, the one I've just told you about, he was the only one in the auction that met the tenant. He was the only one in the auction that met the tenant three times because I kept sending him back. I said, you've never got this information. you never got this information. And then he was the only one in the auction that knew he could get a, a new 15-year lease. And there was only nine months left. So he had insider knowledge. Why? Because apathy. Nobody can be bothered to get on your bike. <laughs> yeah. Get on your bike, get uncomfortable, get the deal done. <laughs> yeah. Get your feet on, get your feet out there and start walking and talking. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant, Dan. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Um, really appreciate that, that there are so many different elements and areas we could go and talk about for hours. The, the discussion about the brand, boxing a brand, is really interesting. And I think that's a strategy that some listeners should be able to really latch on to, that fact that go and find the tenant first, cut down the risk, and then go and look for the properties. It's, it's been really good talking to you. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye. What a great story. Thank you, Dan, for joining us. I hope you got a lot from that episode. As ever, there will be details in the show notes. And whilst you're in there looking at those, you will see we now have a fixed date and a link for our next tour day. Why not take the chance to visit a number of our commercial multi-let properties and look behind the scenes? This is a full day with a limited number of people where we go multi-site tour 
with an afternoon workshop digging in deeper to the commercial property market and how to get started in this great asset class. As a special bonus, we are also running a Cashflow 101 event with the Kiyosaki board game that evening and the all-day tour attendees will get free access to that event to top off a very full and immersive day. The date has now been set for the 21st of April, so I'm really looking forward to meeting some of you then. Thanks for tuning in, and if you're going to do anything to move forward with commercial property, then make sure you get out there into the commercial swim. Oh, 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 oh